to many beings what we're doing. Might look like a waste of time. We're certainly self-indulgent while the world is burning. Facing all these crises, powerful forces in the world in denial about global warming and catastrophic financial crises. Many places, uh, crippling unemployment, all kinds of conflicts, wars, sicknesses, cholera epidemics in our neighboring countries, Zimbabwe, uh, AIDS epidemics. So it can look quite self-indulgent to be sitting on a mountain. Seeming just to be sitting, not doing anything. Watching your breath. When I first went off to Thailand, my parents were devastated in a way. Worried I'd been brainwashed, abducted by a cult. I had been uh, at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. So in America, that's a big deal. So, and I was going to come back after the Rhodes Scholarship and then be a doctor. Already had some places in medical schools that I hadn't chosen one yet, but uh, and so my parents were really happy for me and excited about a productive future. And I write them this long, baffling, explanatory letter and and phone them up. And I'm uh, off in Thailand. They looked on the globe from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lake Chickamauga. Thailand literally is as far away as you can get. It's on the other side of the globe. There's not a lot of knowledge about Buddhist monasteries in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there certainly was knowledge about the dangers of cults being brainwashed. So, uh, though my mother was 
terrified of the idea of jungles and all kinds of creatures that might be there. My mother and father went, flew to Thailand, went up to the northeast, found the monastery to, they wanted to f see whether I was okay. Hear my voice. See who these people were I was hanging out with. And at that time, I mean, the world also was, there was conflagrations, wars, threat of communism, terrorist guerrillas. I mean, next door to Thailand, there was the catastrophes of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam unfolding that our own country was very involved in. So anyway, my mother and father get to Northeast Thailand, get to Ajahn Chah's monastery. And I was very, very touched that he made an effort. He really made an effort. He knew so many Western families just couldn't understand what, whose children had gone to monasteries, what their children were up to. He made real time to, to be with my mother and father. And in fact, he decided, though I was just a postulant at the time, basically I was in white, uh, just serving, I was a servant. helping prepare food and I would pound in the morning because the food was quite sparse. I would pound sesame seeds and peanuts into peanut butter so that the monks would have a little glob of something to mix with this glutinous rice that they would get on alms round. That made me very popular, by the way. with the monks. I was just a novice. Ajahn Chah decided, uh, just a postulant, Ajahn Chah decided that while my family was there so that they could feel a part of what I was doing, he was going to ordain me as a novice so I would go from white into brown robe so that my parents could be a part of it. They could feel a part of what I was doing. They could offer me my bowl and my, my robes. He really made the time to talk to my family and through translators so they could hear their worries, doubts. And my, my father has been a keen, avid follower of politics long time, all his life, and he was very aware of just, because our monastery where we were is quite near the Laotian and Cambodian border, and my dad was worried. So he was asking Ajahn Chah, what about these communist guerrillas? Aren't you worried about them? 
I don't know if they used the word, I think they did, but not quite to the same extent we do now, terrorist. But it was the same principle. And, my, and Ajahn Chah gave my dad this lovely Dhamma talk, which I can't remember all of it. But the main principle was, Ajahn Chah said, yes, there are these communist guerrillas, he says, but you know, the most dangerous terrorists, the most dangerous guerrillas are the ones that are in your own heart you don't even recognize. So those are the ones that can really rob you any well-being of any peace. He was talking about the desires of the mind, the aversions of the mind, the delusions of the mind, the unconscious restlessnesses and worries and doubts of the mind that aren't recognized for what they are can tangle us up, tie us into knots, and rob us of any peace, generating all kind of conflict, all kind of battles that we think are, are going to get us to this happiness, to this well-being, when really we've been invaded, taken over, hijacked dislodged from our home, our own home. By the time my mom and dad went home, back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, they, they still were somewhat devastated by what I was doing. But my dad looked at me and my mom, but I remember my dad saying, you know, he realized this was that Ajahn Chah was a, a teacher, a real teacher, that this was a real monastery. He could sense the quality of integrity. They didn't really understand at that time what I was doing, but they, they weren't worried. It was I was, had been abducted by a cult. But this work that we're doing, that on the outside might appear really self-indulgent and kind of waste the time, is, is trying to meet and recognize and give the opportunity for these terrorists or these guerrillas of the, of the consciousness of the human heart to show themselves, to be recognized, to seen. The, the Buddha described it, that when we, when we are fooled by these externals, these appearances, by fooled by what moves through the heart, we suffer endlessly, endless birth and death. The Buddha said it's like taking a thief to be your own son. What does that mean? You, you take a thief and you take it in thinking that this is my beloved, cherished son. Well, what's the danger of that? And our treasures get robbed. We're robbed of our family heirlooms, of our treasures, of our inheritance, of our 
birthright. And what, does, what do we get robbed of? We get robbed of our own source, our own peaceful, unchanging, luminous nature, our suchness. That's what the Buddha said. So yes, peace and solving the world's problems is wonderful. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if the world was at peace? Wouldn't it be nice if, if uh, we could see how we're harming and taking advantage of and exploiting Mother Earth? Wouldn't it be nice if... Those are all lovely thoughts. But in this work, we are cultivating primary relationship that that, that it's, is grounded in, in reality. It's nice to have a wouldn't it be nice thought, but to, to really get traction, we need to have a grounding in suchness, in, in reality. Or as the Buddha says, uh, in a more earthy example, which fits in with Africa, if a cow is stuck in the mud, to get the cow out of the mud, you need to find a solid ground, a solid perch fulcrum that then one can then from that solidity then pull help bring a creature that's stuck to a place of safety we're cultivating primary relationship the primary relationship of learning to be with the actuality the truth of body in a moment even in one breath, and in one footstep, even with one recognition that, that this body is changeable, gets exhausted, gets energized, gets hungry, gets too full, gets sleepy, gets wired, to, to learn how to be with body. And in being with body, to, to learn how to be and, and use and recognize mind. To get just even a taste of what happens when the mind starts to be gathered, established in being with how things are. When we really are in moments with how things are, there's a sense of gatheredness, brightness becomes manifest. And to begin to recognize the thieves or that which can rob us of, of, our, of the treasure of knowing our own ease, knowing our own peace, knowing our own strength, knowing our own nature. To recognize like these today, these... these uh, Gorillas or terrorists, that which can terrorize us, badger us, victimize us. But when we, but when we just assume this is me, all the desires are me, the aversions are me, the ill will is me, the restlessness is me, it's precious, the dullness is me, the doubts are, are me and mine, then we, we're so subject 
every whim, every passing thought. It sends a scurrying over here, scurrying over there, endlessly thinking in circles and knots. So to, to have, a, and those are, those are conditioned tendencies. There's habits. It's work, as we know, because people, we've all, all of us been working hard. It's not easy to bear to actually cultivate this primary relationship and really be here now as we, as we have all these currents that are what are called outflows, sweeping us out, telling us the treasure's over there, the treasure's over there, the treasure's over there. That's how they rob us. But in a moment, even, even just the, being able to say, ah, there's desire. Just to recognize it, restlessness, ill will, doubt, heaviness, worry. And for a moment, just to have a question mark, a moment, just to, rather than immediately have to believe it, just to, to be able to reflect on it as what it is, an energy, a mood, a state. That's work, but also already has a hidden blessing in it. One moment of being with desire, with a little bit more presence, listening to its pull, no, no, I I, I have to have, I want, I need, I'll die if... don't have another one moment of just listening to that questioning that investigating that already generates a silent dispassion a moment of being with desire starts to make manifest the opposite you can't know desire without accessing that which is dispassionate not desire Similarly, with ill will, by a moment of being with our resistance, investigating it, listening to it as a, as a guest, a visitor, a state, part of nature, moment of that brings forth a quiet, Kindness. You can't know ill will. You can't be with that without the opposite, without compassion, without finding, discovering that we have a resource of compassion that's able to be with ill will. All of these hindrances in being with them, that's why they're compost, that's why they're not wasted, that's why they're significant. They're moments of, that's why awareness is called the magician's stone, the philosopher's stone. It's an alchemy, the mysterious transmutation. When things are unnoticed, they're one thing, but a moment of touching something with presence is something different happens. It starts transmuting. Like doubt. Oh gosh, I'm not really sure what to do, how to do this. 
I'm going to sort all that out. Just one big tangle of doubt. My true nature is doubt. A moment of noticing doubt, recognizing doubt, that's confidence. That's knowing. We're resting in knowing. We might not know the answer of what to do next. We might not know how to solve a certain problem, but there's knowing. We're resting in knowing just to recognize doubt. By contemplating it, we discover that there's deeper than that, the very opposite of it, in a very quiet way. So once, I can't remember exactly the situation, whether someone asked Ajahn Chah about enlightenment or being a bodhisattva or something. I'm not sure what the circumstance was. But I know an image he would often use, he would say, well, it's, or if someone was a stream enterer or once returner, or enlightened or a bodhisattva or an arahat, something like that. And I think he said something like, well, it's better to be an earthworm. Just be an earthworm. Sometimes we're wondering, where is this going to take us? Are we going to get to enlightenment? Are we going to do exams? Are we going to have a give at the end of the first week? Little grades. Ajahn Chah was saying, it's better to be an earthworm. An earthworm burrows through the soil, burrows through the compost, aerates the soil, transmutes. Doesn't even have any arms and legs. It's not going to win the beauty contest. It's hidden, but it's serving an incredibly important function. And we're burrowing through the stuff, our karma, what we've created, touching into, burrowing through all the desires and aversions and ill wills and worries and doubts, little by little, touching them, suffusing them, permeating them with listening, investigating, transmuting all of that into strength presence, wisdom, compassion, because it takes capacity to, to be with this stuff. It looks so easy from the outside. It looks so easy. Ajahn Chah, I remember he would say, hmm, you think it's easy? It's like walking into, right into the center of a hurricane. Because we know it's not easy, but it's, it's important. And as we deepen this capacity to be real in little ways, in steps, in moments, in, with a breath, then also when we, we, we can, this is eminently transportable because wherever we are, here we are, wherever we are, it's opportunity to, in each in our own way, meet problems and address them with, with clarity.
So don't, don't be too worried about how much progress we're making or not. How much samadhi we have. Just for the rest of our life, little by little, in moments of standing, sitting, walking, lying down, we can practice steadying the mind in simplicity, being with the body, being with the breath, being with the moment. Steadying. And with whatever poise that we have to investigate and to notice what obstructs us from being able to really be here. What's called samatha vipassana, two sounding words that actually are, are two principles that come out of one mind that, that are related. Someone asked Ajahn Chah, uh, I heard, I just read in a, in a monk's book, he told the story, he didn't hear it himself, but he said, someone asked Ajahn Chah, what is uh, samatha? And Ajahn Chah said, supposedly, no, you sit down, cross your legs, you watch your breath and make the mind calm. Someone said, well, Ajahn Chah, what is vipassana? Oh, that's very different. You sit down, you cross your legs, you watch your breath, you make your mind calm, and you see that it's not certain. As we get a little presence, the calm flowers into Vipassana. Each little bit of presence helps us see that everything is changing. The morning, states of the morning, the myriad voices and states keep dissolving, keep dissolving, keep dissolving. So it's natural. We get a bit of calm and we think we've really got it and then uh, we think, gosh, what happened? Well, you can call samatha learning to have calm in certain moments. Vipassana is we little by little investigate and learn to stay connected to peace, whatever is happening. As Vipassana begins to investigate, what, what robs us? Our composure starts to reveal that actually everything is changing. Calm steadies the mind just enough to realize that everything's changing. So ultimately, calm holds the mind present, and Vipassana investigates and sees that actually everything's changing. So Vipassana ultimately helps us let go, allow things to come and go. And that's how we work with these thieves that rob us when we, when desire and aversion and restlessness and doubt and worry convince us and we grip, grab hold of them and start thinking that's who we really are, we get all tangled up. But when we start to, with our insight, recognize they're just what they are, states. We don't have to grab them. They change of their own accord. 
And as we learn really to allow things to come and go, we can start to taste and, and reconnect with that treasure which these hindrances when unacknowledged rob us of, the treasure of our own radiant heart. When we allow things to come and go, come and go, we can begin to realize something that is, that is. A calm mind is lovely to have, but it's also impermanent. Calm comes and goes, thoughts come and go, the days come and go. But each sound, each thought arises and ceases. in that source, ever-present source, what can be called Buddha. The listening. So whatever's happening, however tangled up the body-mind seems to be, can we just reflect, this is how it is. And just remember the Buddha said, the Dhamma is always here, it's always now. Give ourselves permission to be open to the possibility that we don't have to look far away. So may any goodness from our day this little hidden mountain slope the work of us making effort to be with how things are may the blessings, the hidden blessings of this cultivation of virtue, steadiness of heart and wisdom. May these hidden blessings be consciously shared with the joy and ease of each outbreath. 
may be shared above, below, and all around, rippling, emanating outwards, measurelessly, touching all the creatures on this mountain, down into Mother Earth, out across the land, across the world. touching our families, friends, loved ones, ancestors. Those close to us, against us, good and bad beings, friends, enemies, without exception, may all beings, all space be touched by this quiet sharing. Because after all, it is one Dharma realm, one unified suchness. May all beings benefit from the goodness of our work. May all beings realize the peacefulness of their own nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.